Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Priya David Clemens in for Mina Kim, coming up on Forum. Ari Shapiro has been the host of NPR's All Things Considered since 2015, and he's reported from all over the world, including Iraq, Ukraine, and Israel. His journalism has won him many accolades, including two Edward R. Murrow Awards, one for his reporting on Breonna Taylor and another for his coverage of asylum policies on the U.S.-Mexico border. On top of that, he's a singer and member of the touring band Pink Martini. We'll talk to Shapiro about how his life and work intertwine. His new memoir is The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens in for Mina Kim. We are speaking this morning with Ari Shapiro, host of All Things Considered on NPR, about his extraordinary career as a journalist. Over the years, Ari has crisscrossed the globe, reporting on climate change from mangrove islands in India, talking with Syrian refugees in cafes in Turkey, interviewing President Obama on Air Force One as a member of the press pool, and more. He's also a singer with the band Pink Martini, performing in major stadiums to tens of thousands of fans. Ari has just written his first book called The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. Ari Shapiro joins us now. Welcome to the show, Ari. Thank you so much for having me, Priya. It's great to be here. Now, before we get into the book and your story, we do want to just touch on the situation at NPR right now. Last week, NPR management announced they would be cutting 10 percent of the workforce to address a $30 million budget shortfall. It is a tough economic environment out there. You've been through NPR layoff rounds before. Does this one feel any different? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's never um, you can look around the media landscape and say that so many media companies are shrinking and having to lay people off. And it's just different when it's your friends and people who you've worked with for years. And it's really tough to see. Um, This is, you know, I, I hate to be the broken record, but this is why member support is so important. And hopefully this will turn around quickly and we'll be able to get back to doing what um, we're known for doing, you know, telling people what's happening in the world um, with stories that provide valuable information and humanity and heart and all the rest. Some of the criticisms and concerns about the layoffs is that they seem to be targeting the new products that are serving younger and more diverse audiences that NPR has said it needs to capture. Does that ring true for you? 
To be honest, you know, um, I haven't dug deeply into exactly what and how the cuts have been decided. And um, one thing that I do take very seriously is that the union that I'm a part of, SAG-AFTRA, has said that management was more collaborative and seemed more open to their suggestions during this round of layoffs than previous ones. And so I take heart from that. Um, it's hard to see anybody I work with lose their jobs. And um I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that update with us. Let's turn to your story now. You grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, as the only part of the only Jewish family in your area. I was immediately captured by a story you tell in the book of being kind of put into the position of being a young ambassador for Judaism at your school. Would you tell us a little bit about that time and how those early roots of sharing your experiences have shaped you? Yeah, my family lived in Fargo until I was eight years old, and we kept kosher there. Um, we got our meat delivered once a month on a freezer truck from Chicago. And as you say, like my older brother and I were the only Jewish kids at our elementary school. And so in the first grade, I was going from classroom to classroom with a menorah and a dreidel every December explaining what Hanukkah is and what Judaism is to these kids who had probably never met a Jewish person before. And I think that was my first experience boundary crossing and explaining something to people who might have seen Jews as foreign or other or um, different from them. And what I realized is that throughout my life, this is a theme that recurs, that I have kind of spent my life trying to help people understand those who might seem different or other. And that was really kind of the beginning of it, it was in the first grade in Fargo with that menorah and the dreidel going from classroom to classroom. Hmm. You've talked about how your upbringing and Judaism have this sort of culture of questioning. You were the children, child of academics, and you were taught that it's great to bring your questions to the table and to not hide those. How has that influenced how you approach journalism? Yeah, Judaism is a religion that is kind of built on not taking things as given and questioning and we're sort of raised to do you know deep probing analysis of textual interpretation and that sort of never taking things at face value is something that I I take from Judaism and apply to my work as a journalist where I sort of try to scratch the surface and dig deeper and find out what's actually going on and not just accept talking points as necessarily factually true. Yeah. And then when you were eight years old, as you said, you grew up in North Dakota until then. And then you moved to what you call the pre-Portlandia weirdness (laughs) of Portland, Oregon, where you came out and you experimented with different fashion, very boundary crossing. What was that experience like in high school for you? Well, so I was the, I mean, similar to being the only Jewish kid at my elementary school, I was the only out gay kid at Beaverton High School in the 1990s. But Portland in those days had what I believe was the only all-ages LGBT nightclub in the country at the time. It was called the City Nightclub. And so on the weekends, I would go to this place where I was surrounded by other queer teenagers. And then on the weekdays, I would go back to my big suburban public high school and sort of take my schedule of honors classes and AP courses. And again, it was this sense of helping people understand things that might have seemed different or abstract and make them real and human. Because in those days, there were two anti-gay rights ballot measures uh, in Oregon, Measure 9 and Measure 13. Both failed, but both would have prevented 
teachers from being able to be openly gay on the job, for example. Um, the language of those ballot measures would have prevented any government money from being used to encourage. And then there was a list of things which included homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, necrophilia, et cetera, et cetera. And so as a kid, I was taught that homosexuality is in the same category as child abuse. I'm not taught by my parents, but taught by this proposed ballot measure that later failed. And so for me, coming out was an opportunity to show my peers and my classmates, like, this is what a gay person is. Whatever ideas you might have been given, this is actually me, and you know me, and so now you know a gay person. And whatever feelings you might have about gay people, you now have about me. And so once again, it was this thing that I, I that I now do as a journalist, trying to sort of cross boundaries, walk between worlds, and bridge these chasms of difference. You did have an understanding family. That must have been a comfort. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My two brothers and my parents were wonderful and supportive, always have been and continue to be. My younger brother actually now lives in Berkeley. He's on faculty at UC Berkeley. Um, my older brother is going to be my moderator at my book event in Seattle. Um, but my moderator in San Francisco, actually, in Corte Madera, I'm really excited on March 31st, is going to be a legend of audio storytelling, Davia Nelson of the Kitchen Sisters. Um, but yes, the, my family has always been supportive, and that's been you know a great help. Yeah, and so for those of you who'd like to meet Ari in person, as you heard, he will be here in Corte Madera soon. Ari, tell us about how you found your way into journalism. When did you first know that you wanted to pursue this craft? I kind of fell into it. I was an English major at Yale, and when I was uh, finishing my senior year, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so a good friend and I sort of made lists of all the things we could possibly apply for. And my list included working at Club Med because I enjoyed being a <laughs> camp counselor and I thought maybe I would enjoy being a staffer at Club Med. My list also included the Peace Corps. And then my friend included NPR on her list. And I thought, huh, yeah, that sounds interesting. I've listened to NPR growing up. I had never taken a journalism course. I'd never written for the school paper. And perhaps that's why NPR rejected me for an internship. Hmm. So anyone who feels like a failure, just know that NPR's Ari Shapiro was rejected for an NPR internship. But then I found out that Nina Totenberg, NPR's legendary legal affairs correspondent, hires her own interns. And so I applied to Nina. She gave me an opportunity. And I moved to Washington, D.C. in early 2001 to intern for her. And have never left NPR. I've stayed there ever since. And NPR was sort of my journalism school. It was my graduate school. It was my training ground. Do you remember your first big story? Well, it depends how you define big. I remember my first story. And I think each one gets a little bit bigger than the previous one. Uh, but the first story I ever reported was for the local station here in Washington, WAMU. And it was a feature about a restaurant that was owned by an Iraqi-American man named Andy Shalal. And he would host these events he called the Peace Cafe, where basically he would invite Arabs and Jews to sit around tables together and literally break bread and eat falafel and hummus. And, and they would have speakers or films and discussions. And I love that it was a way of bringing people together around food to discuss a contentious issue in a constructive way. And so it was, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a light feature story. But in it, I can see some of the themes that have played out in my journalism career ever since. You write in your book that even for some of the stories that are smaller, that maybe aren't the big news of the day, you still feel like you leave a small fingerprint on the record of the day. And I thought that was a beautiful way of saying that. 
And you specifically were talking uh, about a choice to include the word family when describing a gay couple and their adopted son. This is, you know, way back in 2001. You say that moment was part of an awakening for me, a realization that whether or not journalism already had space for people like me, I could make space. And then maybe I could carve out space for others. I didn't have to accept the hard-boiled world of news for what it was with all its flaws. I could be part of a new generation of journalists with the power to nudge our industry and shape it from the inside. I think you're right that journalism is really changing over the last several years. We have seen that with the voices that we listen to. And I'd love to hear from you what you see as the changing face of journalism in the 20 years you've been doing it. Well, one of the things that I sort of anchor this in is the idea that when NPR started, it was changing the face of news. I mean, Susan Stamberg, former host of All Things Considered, was the first woman to host a nationally broadcast nightly news program. NPR has always sounded different from other news outlets. And so when I describe my desire to sort of help the news business evolve, it's not a process that is starting with me. It's a process that I have inherited from others and I'm passing down to the people I work with now who are, in some cases, 20 younger than me. I mean, I'm 44 and when I started at NPR, I was 22. And so in some ways, I think this book is about the push-pull between the way the person I am shapes the stories I tell and the way the stories I've told have shaped the person I am. And that does have to do with identity and history and the experiences that shape us over time. We are speaking with Ari Shapiro, the host of NPR's All Things Considered, about his new book, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I'm Priya David Clemens and this is KQED. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back. We're talking with NPR host and author Ari Shapiro about his latest book, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. And we want to hear from you. What questions do you have for journalist and author Ari Shapiro? Maybe what questions do you have for his path in journalism and what you're about to hear about his life in the performing arts as well? You can 
email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum or give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Ari, as we were going into the break, we were talking about how journalism shapes us as journalists and how we shape the coverage as well from our own life experiences. And even that concept, I think, is more recent, that it is coming forward in recent years that this idea of objectivity is an illusion, that we all come with our personal identities and who we are. And we work as hard as we can to be fair in our coverage. Tell me about your thoughts on that and the concept of objectivity. Yeah, I think we often think of identity as being part of a marginalized group, but my identity is being white and male as much as it is being Jewish and gay. And so I don't think there is such thing as an absence of identity. And who we are shapes the stories we tell. And part of the mission to tell stories in a fair, thorough, nuanced, and balanced way is recognizing that. And so I do want listeners hearing my stories to feel like they could be in my shoes. In many ways, I want to be a surrogate for the listener. I don't want the story to be about me. But there are times when the history and experience that I bring to a story is an added value. I mean, I think, for example, about the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. And I had been to gay bars my whole life. I knew what these places meant to people. I know what these places mean to people. And many of my colleagues were covering those events and doing an admirable job doing it. But I think my storytelling in that case was a little bit different. But I also, forgive me, I'm in my home office and there's a beeping truck outside. Mm -hmm. I also think about events that I come to as an outsider, like when I'm covering the Syrian refugee crisis and I land in coastal Turkey. And I think there can be an advantage to coming to something with fresh eyes and being an outsider and uh, experiencing things for the first time and perhaps noticing things that people wouldn't see who have lived there and marinated in that experience for some time already. Well, one of the places in which your identity and the story collided was uh, when you got married here in San Francisco Mm -hmm. at City Hall when Governor Newsom decided to go ahead and have weddings for gay couples, despite the fact that it was illegal uh, at the time federally. And Ari, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that, because you made a call to ask for permission to get married, but not to your parents or to your spouse's parents, to your work. Yeah, I'm sure many of your listeners will remember that moment in 2004 when Gavin Newsom, who was then San Francisco's mayor, just decided he was going to start doing same-sex marriages. And my husband grew up in San Francisco. Um, My mother-in-law still lives there. Um, My dad also grew up in San Francisco. Um, And so, you know, it was really important to Mike that we take that opportunity to get married. We'd been together for several years at that point. We met in college. But as a beginning reporter, I felt like my job was supposed to be to narrate cultural you know, uh, events that were in the news not to participate in them. And this was kind of at the leading edge of the culture wars. Um, I remember people from all over the world were calling San Francisco florists and having bouquets sent to City Hall just addressed to the happy couple. And so, yes, I asked my boss for permission to get married. And to her credit, she said, of course, go get married, have fun, you know, have a good life. (laughs) And, And I said, okay, I'll keep a low profile. I'll leave my NPR tote bag at home. (laughs) And uh, so we got married on the steps of City Hall, surrounded by other happy couples, and we didn't notice the TV camera over our shoulder. 
And that night, we were on the local NBC San Francisco affiliates story about the same-sex marriage controversy. And they didn't use our names. They didn't interview us. It was just the B-roll footage in the background. And I thought, oops, well, okay, it's it's the local station. And so that'll sort of disappear and flow on downstream. But then the footage got picked up by the NBC Nightly News and by MSNBC and by CNBC. And basically, anytime any NBC station or network did a story about same-sex marriage, Mike and I were the footage. And this was the case for about five years until finally I was NPR's justice correspondent covering legal affairs and Pete Williams was NBC's justice correspondent. And Pete called me one night and he said, Ari, I think you're in the B-roll for my same-sex <laughs> marriage story today. And I said, yes, I explained what had happened. And I said, look, I'm ready to hand the tiara to someone else. And so that was how I stopped being the face of same-sex marriage on NBC News. The, you know, video poster boys. Let's um, go to a caller, actually. Stuart in San Francisco is calling and specifically wants to ask you about your wedding. Stuart, you're on the line. Hey, Ari. I wanted to wish you and your husband a happy 19th anniversary of that San Francisco City Hall wedding. And like you, my husband and I, and of course thousands of others married at City Hall at that time, Um, I had the honor of speaking about it on a panel discussion that you moderated at the first Yale LGBTQ alumni reunion. Amazing. Um, Yeah, blast from the past. Um, But next year, it'll be 20 years uh, since those weddings, and I wonder if you have any reflections on what a difference two decades has made, and if you ever imagined such historic change when you first came out at Beaverton High School amidst those anti-LGBT ballot propositions you mentioned. You know, this is something that I write about in the book, which is I sort of came of age believing that gay stories did not have happy endings, that either you would die of AIDS or you would have to live a closeted life or you would have some other tragic ending because those were the only LGBT stories that I saw when I was growing up. And so in some ways, I look at the landscape today, and I'm shocked to hear language about groomers being used again, which I thought we had retired in the 1990s. But in other ways, I'm on the board of an LGBTQ youth organization in Washington, D.C. called Smile, and I see the Smile youth growing up in an environment where LGBTQ stories can have any kind of ending, not just endings in tragedy. And I think that's that's truly remarkable and striking that it happened just in such a short period of time, as you say. Thank you, Stuart, for that call. Let's turn back now to your reporting in D.C. You worked as the justice correspondent, as you mentioned, for some time, and then you traveled uh, with President Obama. You were a White House correspondent for some time, and you actually didn't want that job and turned it down at first. Who does that? (laughs) Well, I had been covering the Justice Department for four years under the George W. Bush administration. And when the Obama administration came in, I was really curious what these issues that I've been covering would look like under a new presidency and a new party. And so in part, I wanted to spend at least another year covering the Justice Department just to see this seismic shift that was about to take place. But there was also a deeper concern, which was that I was afraid covering the White House would just sort of box me in to doing stories that amounted to today the president said, today the president did. I thought it would be hard to find original, compelling, memorable stories that no one else was telling. And a year later, when I took the job, I realized 
that is a challenge of the White House beat, but it's not an insurmountable obstacle. That can be a good sort of, you know, hurdle to try to overcome every day, but it doesn't have to be a straitjacket. You tell a story about that, actually, near the end of the book, where you talk about a man who goes in and decorates the White House at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And, you you know, you also mention in the book that there's kind of this artificial boundary sometimes between hard news and soft news and what we see as important to tell in our stories. Tell us about that story of the man who is decorating the White House and what you've learned in your storytelling about that sort of more holistic approach. Yeah, his name is David Bonderchuk, and um, I wasn't even planning on doing a story about the White House decorators. I ended up putting together this sort of charming audio postcard with voices of a bunch of the people who had volunteered to decorate the White House for the holidays. David was one of them, and um, he told me that he had been homeless as a teenager, and he saw Martha Stewart on TV decorating the White House during the Clinton administration, And he heard that there were White House volunteers, and he decided that was what he wanted to do with his life. So he started applying, and by the time I met him, he had his own catering and events business in Colorado. And he finally got the opportunity when I met him. And so I said, all right, well, now that you've achieved this dream, what's next? And he said, Martha Stewart in New York, if you're listening, here I come. Hmm. And the, the few days after my story aired, I got a call at my desk, and it was a producer from Martha Stewart. And she said, would you put us in touch with David? And so I connected him with the First Lady's office, which handled the White House volunteers. The next thing I knew, he was on the Martha Stewart show. And Martha said, okay, David, I have another surprise for you. I want you to look over at the TV screen. And on the TV screen, up popped Michelle Obama with a message for David saying, you show us that if we believe in our dreams and we don't give up and we keep trying – we can achieve incredible things. And and the point that I want to make with this story, among many others, is that the artificial line that we draw between hard news and human stories or soft news and, you know, this is, it's an artifice. And often the stories that are most powerful, most meaningful, most memorable are not necessarily with the person who's writing the policy, but with the person who's experiencing the policy. You know, we can talk with analysts and academics and lawmakers about every issue in the news, and there's value to that. But talking with people who are actually experiencing it in their daily lives is different. What is it that people remember in good storytelling? How how do you know when you've found a story? I think it needs something that people can connect to. It needs high stakes and it needs a good narrative. And so, you know, especially when I'm in places that are very far away and very different from the lives that I think most of our listeners lead, I'm always looking for that moment of connection, that moment that people can latch on to. So I'll give you an example. In coastal Turkey, when I was reporting on the Syrian refugee crisis, I stumbled on this cafe where the Turkish restaurant owner had set up all of these folding tables instead of the kind of typical sidewalk cafe table and chairs. And on the folding tables, he had put out power strips. And in the windows of the cafe, he had given the Wi-Fi login and password. And all of the power strips were full with people charging their phones and video chatting with their relatives back home in Syria. And I thought, when the Syrian refugee crisis feels so abstract and far away, The specificity of somebody trying to find a spot to charge their phone, Mm. find Wi-Fi, and connect with their family members is something that every NPR listener can relate to, can connect to, can identify with. And I also love that it was sort of somebody helping and doing a small part 
to make people's lives better in this very difficult situation. And so the minute I met this man, I knew he was going to go in the story because that was something that would make this enormous tragedy feel more human and accessible and real to people listening at home. You were posted in London as a correspondent for NPR and shared offices with the BBC. You know, you spent a lot of time globetrotting in various war-torn areas, Iraq, Ukraine, Turkey, as you mentioned. What did you learn that you wanted to bring to your audience in that space of expanding your own knowledge about the world? Kid coming from Fargo, North Dakota, and learning experientially about this big, broad world and the struggles in it. What did you start to learn? How did you start to shape, um, you know, new pathways in your own mind that you brought to your audience? Yeah, I realized that growing up in the United States, I had been incredibly lucky to live in this country that has two enormous oceans on either side of it, that has not had a war fought on American soil in more than a century. And, you know, even members of the military who go and fight overseas have these experiences so far removed from those of us who are back in the U.S. that I realize that as empathetic and open-minded as I might have imagined myself to be, when I heard stories about wars, I somehow thought of those people as fundamentally different from me. Like, I categorize them in my head as, like, war people in war places. And, of course, what I realized when I started meeting people who were living through this was that they were no different from us at all except for in the circumstances that they found themselves in. And so then the challenge that I faced was, how do I help listeners remove their blinders? How do I help the audience that I'm telling stories for appreciate the real lived experience of these people and not just write them off as somehow fundamentally different because they are living in a war zone? It is a privilege to be able to go to different parts of the world and to hear these stories. It's a privilege to be able to report on communities where they have struggle and suffering and to bring those stories forward. But it can also put a tremendous amount of weight on journalists. And there's a term called vicarious trauma that I've heard. I'm curious how you deal with the images, the moments, the stories that you have heard over the years as a journalist and as a human. Yeah, I I don't have one single coping mechanism. There are a lot of things that I do. I go for runs. I do yoga. I have two dogs who are not officially therapy dogs, but could probably pass the test (laughs) if there were one. I, you know, I try to have a good, solid work-life balance. I have a husband who is a very good listener. Um, But what you're talking about is real and important for journalists to keep in mind. I think often I feel like in these moments when everyone is wondering, what can I do? in this crisis, whether it's 9-11 or the pandemic, I take great comfort and reassurance in knowing that I have a role to play, that I can serve a valuable function, that I know what I'm supposed to be doing in that moment. And, you know, I remember when everything was shutting down at the start of the COVID pandemic and everyone was suddenly having to work from home and I was, you know, hosting, working with this team of people, many of whom were just starting in journalism, I said to them something that 20 years earlier after 9-11, the host of Morning Edition said to me when I was the youngest person on the staff, which is, we're very lucky that in this moment when everyone is wondering what they should be doing, we know what we're supposed to be doing. We're going to go to the phones now. Erica is calling in from Santa Cruz. Hi, Hi. Erica. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just want to thank you, Ari Shapiro, for being so thoughtful and bringing so much humanity for all of the stories that you tell. You really do make me feel like you're including me in your experience. And I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's true. And thank you for taking the risks that you do to be a journalist. And always you seem to find the human truth of all the situations. So thank you. You're appreciated. Well, that's very kind of you to say. You know, one of the things that I say in the book is that I've never shied away from attention. But what I really love, even more than people <laughs> listening to my voice, is being able to find somebody whose voice people wouldn't ever otherwise hear and elevate them to a platform where millions of people can hear their story. So it feels like a privilege to be able to do that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to reading your book. Thanks. Thank you for your call, Erica. Erica said something that caught my ear. She talked about you being a risk taker. And I think that's very true in your life, that you have shown a fair amount of courage in the choices that you have made. And it seems like that stems to your earliest days. Have you always been a fairly brave person? You know, I think it's more, I would describe it as curiosity more than risk taking. I always want to know what's happening and why people are doing what they do and who I can go meet. I think among the universe of journalists, I'm not somebody who throws myself into dangerous situations for the thrill of the adrenaline. Although there are some stories you'll read in the book where I made choices that in hindsight might not have been <laughs> um, advisable from a safety perspective. Um, and strangely, some of the scenarios that have turned out to be the closest near misses were ones that we didn't expect to be dangerous at all. You know, I just allude in passing to a moment that um, took place in Zimbabwe, where we attended a presidential rally. And moments after we left, there was a huge explosion where people died. We didn't expect that to be an unsafe situation at all, but we we narrowly missed being injured ourselves. Mm. There are those scary moments that you will remember for the rest of your life. We're talking with NPR journalist and author Ari Shapiro. His new memoir is The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. And we'd love to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to us at forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
We're talking this morning with Ari Shapiro, host of All Things Considered on NPR. Ari, I want to share some messages that are coming in. One is from Jesse, who asks, do you think that your ability and desire to stay open to positivity has opened the doors to the opportunities that you have experienced today? And Laura tweeted in, thank you, Ari Shapiro, for sharing your story. You're such an inspiration, and that's one of the many reasons I love NPR. I would love to pivot now to a different part of your life. You are also a singer and a performer with the legendary band Pink Martini that's been touring for 30 years. Tell us how this came about. Yeah, so I uh, was a fan of Pink Martini when I was in high school, and they were a little local band that nobody outside of Portland had heard of and became friends with them over the years to the point that when they would tour through D.C., I would often throw them a dinner or brunch or cocktails, host something for them. And then one night, I threw a dinner party, like a backyard cookout in 2008, and it turned into a late-night sing-along. And the next morning, Thomas Lauderdale, Pink Martini's band leader, said, hey, I forgot, you can really sing. Do you want to come record this song on our next album that we're writing for a man to sing? And I thought... Well, that's never actually going to happen. But yes, of course, I would love to. And the next thing I knew, I was in a studio with them in Portland recording this song called But Now I'm Back. Um, And then Thomas said, well, we need to find a time for you to perform live with us. So why don't you come to the Hollywood Bowl? So the first time I ever sang live on stage with any band anywhere was with Pink Martini at the Hollywood Bowl. And in the 13 years since then, I have toured all over the world with them, including many times in San Francisco. We have sung with the San Francisco Symphony and at SF Jazz. It's truly one of my favorite places to play, and not only because um, often we're just across the street from where I got married at City Hall. We do have a clip of you singing that we will play at the end of the show. But if you have a San Francisco song that you want to give us a little moment Mm. of you singing... I'm happy to provide the space. Uh, That's very kind of you to offer. You know, I'm going to pass for the moment on the invitation to sing live. However, if folks want to come to the Corti Madeira event with Davia Nelson on March 31st at Book Passage, they may get a live performance there. I'm not promising, but it it, it just might happen. It could happen. All right. Uh, Ari, tell us about singing and what that provides for you in your life as an artist and how that balances out with your work as a journalist. It's funny because before I started writing the book, I thought of them as very different kinds of activities. But I realized as I was writing the book, actually, that they have much more in common than I thought. Like they are both forms of connection. They're both forms of storytelling. They both involve relating to an audience Um, And this is also true of, you know, I do a show with Alan Cumming, where he and I do a cabaret together. We've toured it around the country. And I realized that that, too, is about trying to build empathy and connection, just like journalism. You also find inspiration in fiction, in what writers do. You have a very creative side of you. You're also uh, occasionally part of a group called The Fairies. Would you share Mm -hmm. that creative piece of you and how that fuels your work? Well, you know, I find that fiction is the best way I know to see the world through the eyes of someone else. So when I'm reading a well-written novel, it takes me to a place and to a perspective that I can inhabit from the inside looking out. And 
as I said, that's kind of what I try to do in journalism, but I think fiction does it in some ways almost more effectively. Um, one story that I tell in the book is about reading this novel by the author Amitav Ghosh. It was called The Hungry Tide, and it was set in this part of India called the Sundarbans, which is these mangrove islands that span the border of India and Bangladesh. And years later, I went to the Sundarbans to do a reporting project because the stories that he had told from that place through fiction stuck so vividly in my mind. And I interviewed him before I went there and sort of talked to him about this place and then reported all of these stories, hoping that the stories that I told through journalism might in some way affect people and stay with them just as the stories that he had told through fiction stayed with me. You know, as much as we have been talking about how journalism has changed and the concept of objectivity and individual uh, presence in storytelling, the audience has also changed over the years in terms of how much they're willing to accept what they see in the news media as true. And one of the people who's written in this morning has asked, please ask Ari if he has any perception of what percentage of the population are willing to accept facts rather than propaganda. Have you seen a change yourself in the audience over the years? Um, you know, so I, I'm not an audience research expert, but obviously covering the news, we see the kind of assault on truth that you're talking about. And I think people have often tried to weaponize the media over the years, but that's increased more recently. And I think it's on us to show our work and explain why and how we do what we do so that people who are skeptical understand where we're coming from. And I have no idea what percentage of people are, you know, willing to believe fact-based reporting versus the percentage that buy into propaganda and hype and conspiracy theories. But there's not just one solution to the problem, and the problem doesn't come from just one place. Of course, it's, you know, political leaders, it's uh, social media algorithms, it's any number of forces, and it's going to take any number of solutions. But one of them is telling fact-based stories in a human way that people can hear and understand. And in so doing, I think we try to build empathy. We have several people calling in. Let's start with Michael from Walnut Creek. Michael, you're on the lines. Thank you for taking my call. And Ari, congratulations on a wonderful career. And I'm a big fan of listening to your stories. And I really do love the human element that you tell to bring them close to home. But my question is, at what point in your career do you think you'll know it's time to step away? What might some of those signs be, and what would you possibly do after leading mm -hmm. such a fascinating and interesting life? I want to keep challenging myself, and I want to keep doing difficult things that I might fail at. And so the latest version of that is writing a book, and I don't know what the next version of that is, but... I, I'm really inspired by Alan Cumming, who throughout his life has kept pushing the boundaries of what he's able to do. At the age of 57, you know, this man with two Tonys under his belt and countless other awards and recognition, at 57, he created a solo dance show based on the life of the Scottish poet Robert Burns. And I went to see it, and Alan is a person who's never thought of himself as a dancer, and this was something that he could have failed at. But he pushed himself to try something new, and this is beside the point, but it got great reviews, and it was an incredibly moving piece. I want to follow in those footsteps and always try to do things that are difficult and challenging and have a risk of failure. And I don't know what that might be, um, but I, I hope to never get bored. 
Thank you, Michael. Thanks for your call. You you do take some risks. You do uh, step out even when it is scary. And I thought one of the most humanizing elements in your book was chapter 13 when you say you can't see Schwitz on the radio. <laughs> Let me that read a couple. That is actually a title that comes from a Scissor Sisters song, um, which is a deep cut for those who don't know it. Um, it's a word that I think I'm technically allowed to say on public radio, but I'm not going to risk it. We'll just say it rhymes with Schwitz. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, I'm going to read a few, few lines here for our audience. Ari writes, here's something you wouldn't know if you've only heard me on the radio or read me on the page. When I get nervous or anxious or self-conscious or pretty much any emotion in that universe of feelings, I sweat. <laughs> and you say, I don't get dewy. I don't perspire. I'm not talking about I could use a handkerchief. I'm talking about I could use a towel and a mop and a change of clothes. The kind of sweating that makes people wonder if I'm unwell or on drugs. Sometimes we have these physical things that happen to us and we make it through anyway. How do you manage your schwitzing? I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that even people who are successful at doing any number of things are not flawless. And so I wanted to put the chapter in there, first of all, for a moment of levity in the midst of some stories that are kind of heavy about war and other, you know, difficult situations. Um, but I, I just think it's important to show the, the entirety of the human experience, even when that involves embarrassing moments. And there are definitely some stories in that chapter that rank among my top 10 most embarrassing moments. Um, but I wanted the book as a whole to sort of feel like, you know, on on its best days, All Things Considered, I think, captures the entire sweep of humanity. And I didn't want this book to be All Things Considered in book form, but that sense of you never know what's going to be around the corner. You never know what the next chapter is going to bring. You're going to experience the full range of emotions. I was trying to capture that across these essays, and that includes the one about sweating. <laughs> Let's uh, take a couple more callers. Robert from San Francisco, welcome to Forum. Well, thank you for everything that you do. And uh, I happen to be gay and Jewish. Oh. I came out in New York in 1985. So I'm twice blessed. There was actually a book title by that name that came out roughly hmm. in the early 90s. Uh, so in a way, it's like being a minority two times over. But it's a way of being very empowered uh, by doing that. And reflecting on your wedding um, in 2004 in San Francisco, I always refer to former Mayor Gavin Newsom as the Lord of the Rings. So, Ari, thank <laughs> you for everything you do and making the world a better place. Tikkun alum of wow, the, of the world. You know, I, I think that I said that we all have identities, and that's true, and I think that's important to recognize. I think membership in a marginalized group sort of allows people to see the scaffolding that society is built on in ways that might not be as evident to people who are not members of marginalized groups. And so I think that, you know, in a way, it's helpful to occasionally be an outsider because it allows you to recognize the water that the fish are swimming in that might not be evident to the fish themselves, if you know what I mean. Thank you, Robert. We appreciate that call. And Andrea from Oakland. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, that's a great segue into my comment, and that is, Ari, uh, I've uh, been a longtime NPR listener and have always felt well represented 
by the many anchors on the shows. Uh, as a queer woman, I felt safe and seen. But your reporting from the Pulse uh, massacre really said something to me about representation. I felt mm. present. I felt represented. Your reporting was so compassionate and provided an immediacy and a dignity that would have been otherwise missing from any of the other anchors. And I felt um, as if I was there with you. And I just want to thank you for taking your whole self and being your whole self in that moment. It meant and continues to mean a great deal to me. Andrea, stay on the line with us, uh, and Ari will respond in just a moment. You're listening to Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens in Fermina Kim. Ari, let me just add on to what Andrea has said here. You have a passage in the book where you say, one of the things I explore is kind of the tension between bringing your full self to any story you tell and approaching stories as an outsider. And with the Pulse nightclub shooting, I knew I brought something to that story that other journalists did not. The experience and the history and the perspective that I brought to those stories made them better, not worse. They didn't compromise me as a journalist. They enhanced what I was doing as a journalist. Yeah, I mean, you know, as people who read the book will learn, um, I had a connection to Pulse that I was not aware of until the end of my experience reporting on it. And I knew that I had been bar hopping in Orlando more than a decade earlier, but it was only towards the end of my reporting that I um, had a conversation with the editor of the free gay weekly paper. He since passed away. His name is Billy Maines. Um, but before our interview, I said to him, oh, yeah, I went bar hopping in Orlando these, you know, 12 years ago. And he said, what was the bar called? And I said, I don't remember. I'm sure it's long since closed. Gay bars don't stick around that long. And he said, well, what did it look like? And so I described the layout to him. And he said, that was Pulse. And it was only in that moment that I realized not only did I have a connection to the kind of place where this massacre happened, but I had a connection to the exact place where this massacre happened. And I think it's important to consider objectivity when we're talking about the role of a journalist, but it's also important to recognize that history and experience and identity can be of value. And this is one place where I think that was true. Thank you, Andrea, for calling in. Ari, you also write in the book about a phrase that we hear often on the radio. Thank you for listening. And you <laughs> yes. talk about what that means for you. Would you share that with us? Well, I, when I was a, a temp editorial assistant working on Morning Edition, I used to, one of my duties was to respond to the listener email inbox. And so when people would write with any kind of a critique, particularly an angry rant, I would always reply, thank you for listening, Morning Edition. And when I started getting hate mail for myself as a reporter who was on the air, I felt like I had truly arrived. And so I actually, like, I save my hate mail. I have a postcard framed on my desk that arrived from somebody the first time I ever started hosting Morning Edition as a fill-in guest anchor. Um, and, I, you know, I feel like it means that people are listening, that they are giving me their attention. And so when I say thank you for listening, I mean it sincerely, but I say it's sort of like the shalom of broadcast journalism. It can mean many things. It can also be a little bit like the Southern bless your heart, where when you say it, there's a little bit of a, you know, sharp edge to it. <laughs> um was there anything that you left out of the book that you now wish you'd kept in? There's nothing that I wish that I had kept in. But, you know, I do appreciate that 
had I written this book five years earlier or five years later, it would have been a different book. And I started writing this in the fall of 2020. So it was late in the first year of the pandemic when we were all so isolated from each other. And it was only after finishing writing the book that I realized what I'm really exploring in so many of these chapters is the idea of connection. And I think it's not a coincidence that that's what I was writing about in a moment when so many of us were so deprived of connection. And hopefully these chapters are some kind of antidote to that. Another thing you write about in the book is your love of cooking. And Mm -hmm. one of the listeners has written in, since you're related to NPR's Susan Stamberg, NPR listeners are dying to know, have you ever tasted Mama Stamberg's cranberry relish? You know, the truth is, in the NPR cafeteria, which is wonderful, it's called Sound Bites. It is run by Chef Janice. Every Thanksgiving week, they serve Mama Stamberg's cranberry relish in the NPR cafeteria. So anyone at NPR who has not tried it has made the choice not to try it. (laughs) Anything you would share about it? Oh, I enjoy it. I mean, I've never made it myself at home, but I think it's a nice change from the ordinary cranberry sauce. What are you looking forward to working on next? What are the stories you're most eager to tell? Well, this is actually the first time in more than 20 years that I have taken a sabbatical from work. I'm taking two months unpaid away from NPR. And so I'm so excited about traveling around the country and meeting people and having conversations with them about this. As I've said, I'm coming to the Bay Area. I'm going to be at Book Passage in Cordy Madera on March 31st in conversation with the great audio producer, Davian Nelson. And so this is a moment where taking a break and a step back from the news and a step back from the news storytelling, I'm really leaning into actually interacting with the people who have heard these stories over the years. And then the day I finish my book tour, I'm catching a midnight flight from Los Angeles to New York to open the show that I do with Alan Cumming in New York, where we're running for two weeks at the Cafe Carlisle. So it's going to be a busy sabbatical, but also a bit of a break from the news. Well, good for you. I hope it's refreshing. And thank you for sharing your insight and your world with us. We all have a better insight and look at what you do and what NPR does. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to KQED's Forum. My guest this hour was Ari Shapiro, journalist and author of the new book, The Best Strangers in the World. And you can listen to him singing as we end the show for today. I'm Priya David Clemens. Thanks for joining us. Con alegría y placer, los pastelitos o comer, con almendrigas y la miel, los pastelitos o comer, con almendrigas y la miel. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.